I'm gonna start cutting you off at the ankles. Then I'm gonna take your feet and throw them right over there in that basket. Cute, huh? Looks this guy's a Shut up, Nico. Look, I can make you disappear. Chris Gowser here with Matt Howell. And on this episode of The First Run, Matt and I are going to venture back into wartime, World War I to be specific, and check in on everyone's favorite super horny geriatric maniac in her young formative years. It's Ty West and Mia Goth returning with Pearl, the prequel to X. Can a prequel possibly prove upon Matt or even perhaps rescue X? Because then remember you and I were a little tepid on X, so some people seem to really enjoy it. And then Matt does me a solid or performs to me a kindness to kind of call back <laughs> to the other episode uh, by allowing us to discuss the David Bowie super documentary Moon Age Daydream. Now, Bowie is my favorite musician, but I tend to run super critical, Matt, on any works associated with the Thin White Duke. So we'll see how this documentary air quotes turns out. And why am I using air quotes? There's the life-affirming rundown of the big release on physical media, featuring your streaming and straight-to-DVD picks of the week. And then Matt and I are going to close out the show by sharing our five favorite albums. I will tell you right now that The Return of Bruno does not make my top <laughs> five, but it was under consideration. Wow. But will Foreigner make Matt's list? Mm. But why does Matt hate Foreigner? And then by <laughs> extension, why does Matt hate me? All of that and more on this episode of The First Run. But let's start everything off with a clip from... Pearl. Please, Lord, make me the biggest star the world has ever known, so that I'll make it far, far away from this place. Well, caring for your family during these times is admirable, but you only get one take at this life. If only they would just die. Pardon? Nothing. Be special, dancing up on the screen like the pretty girls in the pictures. I will not let you leave this farm again. I'm worried there may be something real wrong with me. Maybe. Maybe. You think so? So much. <laughs> Just a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Give me that pill. Uh, so... Mia Goth returns as Pearl, who was our murderous, psychopathic senior from mm-hmm. Ty West X. And they had the idea, I guess this was also partly Mia Goth's idea as well, to do the prequel. So here we are, just a scant, what, six months later? Yeah. Yeah. Pearl is in theaters now. Matt, what is Pearl all about? All right. So it is 1917. Our, our gal, Mia Goth, uh, who plays the titular Pearl is a young woman who is chafing under the life of a farm girl in wherever the hell they are in the country. Uh, she has a stern uh, German... Tejas, I believe. They're where? Texas. Tex. Oh, that's right. They are in Tejas. Texas. Thank you. I forgot. Thank you. Yes. I, it took me a I'm second. using my Italian roots. <laughs> is that what that is? <laughs> Tejas. Tejas. 
So they, she chafes under the the rule of a a stern German mother. Her father has gotten sick because this is during the Spanish flu pandemic, and he is basically infirm and unable to take care of himself anymore. And she is convinced, like many a farm girl before her, as far as the silver screen goes, that she is destined for fame, fortune, and greater things, and she has to get out of this town, and she'll do damn well anything she has to to do it. Very good, very good. So yeah, Matt, we were both, we enjoyed X, but we didn't get all the fanfare that everybody's saying, oh, wow, it's wonderful, it's fantastic, it's the greatest Mm -hmm. thing since, you know, you're you're combining sex and porn with the horror type thing, and it's (laughs) set in the 70s, and it's like it's like crazy. You know, it's like chocolate and peanut butter, two, porn and horror, just two two great tastes that taste great together. Dogs and cats living together. That's right, mass hysteria. So, yeah, and we, okay. So I'm thinking, all right, well, do we really want to see a prequel to that mm-hmm. film? Mm-hmm. So Matt, let me ask you, is it a successful endeavor? Dare I say, as it seems to be on the internets, who also loved X, saying that it actually adds more depth and meaning to X and improves upon even that film, now that we get a little background. I mean, it's a bit of a stretch, I think. I guess it improves. I guess it depends on how into X and how much you wanted to learn how Pearl became who she was. Well, do you want to revisit X now that you've seen Pearl? Has it like ignited any rewatch yeah, for you? I'm good. I'm I'm all right. I mean, I, I mean, I'll be I'll be honest with you. I'll probably end up watching Maxine, the uh, mm-hmm. you know Triple X Maxine coming <laughs> with uh, in the near future from Ty West and Mia Goth as a sequel to X. But I don't think it adds so much to the film that I was like, oh man, now I got to watch X again to just really get all this subtext and nuance that I just missed out on on the first time. This movie, for the first two-thirds of it, is it defies any kind of horror movie expectation. There's no kind of suspense or building dread. I mean, you kind of know where she ends up. Um, I don't think the story is particularly earth-shattering um, as far as how she gets to where she is. And, you know, I mean, I don't think it's really particularly anything special. But then it kind of takes that... You know, when the turn finally starts to happen, like in that last third, I mean, it is pretty disturbing and crazy but honestly i would be more interested to see how they got from where pearl ends at the end of this movie with her husband howard coming back from the war and how they became pearl and howard who lock up people in their sex dungeon basement that i think that would be a, have been a better movie than you know pearl does her best uh mia goth does her best uh Dorothy impression for the first, you know, 45 minutes. <laughs> I, I guess I am a little intrigued to see the, how they make that transition. And it's nice to see that, you know, he does truly care for her and love her and wants to take care of her and all of her insanity, I guess. I, I don't know. I think it does improve X a bit. I think it makes it a more, it's a f- more fuller, richer experience. Mm-hmm. And I think I would like to revisit. Now, we both gave X a B. Back in the day. And by the way, that was episode 599, if you want to track that one down. Ooh. But I think Goth here turns into some top shelf work. I think her Pearl is really interesting and engaging. And I really kind of got sucked into this whole film. I think chiefly because A, her performance, and B, Ty West's uh, period horror stuff. I love a good period horror film. And I think West does a really good job of kind of melding in this kind of cheekiness about it at times but still firmly grounding it in this time frame but it doesn't feel like a cheap 
move to me at all. It all works, I think, really well. And I think he really tops himself with this. I think this is the best thing he's done since uh, House of the Devil. I think it's still second to House of the Devil. Mm -hmm. But still, I think this is the best thing he's done since then. And I think there's a lot to enjoy. I think it's really funny at times. I think it's very clever. I think it does a really good job of taking advantage of its setting, but it never feels forced. And I love the nods to Psycho. There's a, quite a few. There's a, the, the Wizard of Oz when she's mm-hmm. biking with the stuffed books and the whatever the suitcases on the back, and yeah. I'm surprised she didn't have a dog with her really at some point. But I think Pearl is is very successful. I had a lot of fun watching this film. I think it's really well done. I'm back on the Ty West train, even though I'd kind of been a little reserved for his last two films, but um, this one seems to. Uh, I don't so know, what I'm, was I'm it? I mean, it was. It was it was House of the Devil, which we loved. Yeah. Then it was the Innkeepers, which is just bad. Yeah. And now then it was X. Is is that? No, he did a western, um, which I confess I, I have not seen. I have not okay. seen the western. I'm blanking on what the name of it is. In the Valley of Violence. Okay. He also did the Sacrament, which I think is pretty good. That's that found footage horror film, basically <laughs> kind of the Jim Jones thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think that one's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So he did Cabin Fever too, which I have not. I don't think I've seen that. That's what he did I've right after it. House of the Devil. Okay. He has two films I did not see prior prior to that, which is The Roost and Sugar Man. Those are from '05 and '07. So I guess I've out of his oeuvre, I've seen what one, two, three, four, now five uh, films, and he's in what ten or eleven? Well, I guess eleven if you count Maxine, which doesn't come out till I don't know when next year. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, pretty damn good. I think there were th- thoughts at some point too that they may shoot this thing in black and white. What do you think mm. if they had gone that route to really, mm. really drive it home? Um, yeah. No, I think I like the 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 kind of washed out color that they had kind of going through this thing. I think the kind of vibrance and the kind of sometimes ludicrous like violence of it. Uh, yeah, I think it would have lost something in translation if it had been in black and white. Yeah, I agree. I think it the shooting it in color was the right decision. So, I don't know. It does still have that, too. I think with the introduction of the Spanish flu, that kind of pandemic feel to it. I know X was shot during mm-hmm. the pandemic in was mm-hmm. it New Zealand. Yeah. And it still kind of has that feel to it as well. Everything is kind of really confined or mostly in the open air. It's got a very limited cast as well. Not a lot of people show up in this one. But I kind of liked Mia Goth in this, Matt. Her Her... I want to say slow descent into madness, but I like how, because they do kind of open her as this kind of relatively normal girl who is just stuck in this horrible situation. When they drop little cues that something bad has happened and she's done horrible things before. Right. And like part of me was wondering, like, if she was responsible for her father's condition. Mm -hmm. Still, lots of interesting stuff. I think you should definitely check it out, Matt. What are you going to give Pearl? Do you have anything to add to our girl? Yeah, I don't know. Um... I can't. I mean, I I'm vacillating if I liked it less than X or if I liked it more than X. Oh, very much more. Come on, it's a much more interesting and inter- engaging film than I think X is. X yeah. is, is is all. I think it's entirely too flash and stylish and look how mm. cool this idea is. When mm. I think Pearl is a much more engaging and um, entertaining film, really. Now that's probably mostly because we have probably what fifty percent more Mia Goth. I don't know. <laughs> 50% more? I would say like 75% more Mia God. I guess I'll come down I'm on bad giving at math. it. 
I, I give it a B plus. I don't, I don't think, I didn't love it, but I, I think it is, I think it is better than X. And I think maybe it'll hold up to repeat viewings. Maybe it'll be interesting to kind of tag team the two of them together and see, uh, see what you learn. Is that a porn reference? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with, uh, <laughs> I, 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 actually, <laughs> I gave Furl an A minus myself. So uh, I think it's, yeah, no, I think I've said what I'm going to say. You've seen it in a lot of places. People say it's a more a richer, full experience. I agree with that. And I think uh, Pearl is a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. It's it, build, it takes a bit to build up to get going, I think, at least in regards to the gore factor. But it does occasionally hit very well with that. So good job, Ty. I'm uh, back on the Ty West bandwagon. Though I'm still upset about your snub when we actually met you. That was not cool, bro. But that's fine. Oh, right. Right. A minus for me, B plus for Matt for Pearl, currently playing in theaters. If you had a chance to see it, shoot us an email at feedback at the firstrun.com. Matt, next up, we're going to spend a few minutes and talk about the big releases. Not the little ones, the big ones, because we're only mm-hmm. big time around here mm-hmm. on physical media. This upcoming Tuesday, September 27th. They got a 4K release of this one just in time because. This duo have repair, or I guess trio have repair repaired. Is that the word? They've gotten back together. They've reunited. Perhaps some people would say who know how to use the English language. So this is a 4K release of a film that I I rather enjoy. Harry called last night. We missed him. He just swears a lot, doesn't he? We're staying in tonight. Whatever happens. Hmm. Except. Hmm. Hmm. Except. Hmm. What? Except only one of us needs to stay in. Really? Uh huh. Um, which one of us would that be now, Ray? I thought you didn't like Bruce. I don't like Bruce, this is Paul. But I did already say I had a date with a Belgian lady in the Belgian film business, which. I did already say about before. Just don't get into any trouble. We're keeping a low profile. And this morning and this afternoon, we are doing what I want to do. Got it? Of course. Which I presume will involve culture. Well, we shall strike a balance between culture and fun. Somehow I believe, Ken, that the balance shall... In the favor of culture. That's right. <laughs> Martin McDonough, Colin Farrell, and Brendan Gleeson's In Bruges is getting a 4K release. Uh, a wonderful dark, dark comedy uh, that is a lot of fun. And they've ma- they've reunited. They have a film coming out later this year. We're going to have to work in at some point. The Banshees of Inshirin. Okay. So I'm very happy that the three of them are now working together again. If you haven't seen In Bruges, folks, it is a lot of fun. Very violent at times. Very dark, but still a fun little movie. Also coming up, Matt, is Thor Love and Thunder getting its 4K release from the fine folks at Disney. Once again, just Adobe Atmos audio track, no Adobe Vision. Uh, what else we got there? Walmart has an enamel pin of, Mo- I can never say it, Mo- Mjolnir? Mjolnir. Mjolnir. That's, yeah, that's, you did it. Good job. I got it. Yeah, and that's in the 4K set, and Best Buy has a steel book. Includes audio commentary by YTT, Gag Reel, three featurettes, and uh, three deleted scenes. Matt, 
Rob Zombie's The Monsters unceremoniously coming out on Blu-ray, and I think it's at Netflix soon as well. Is it Hulu or something? Have the you seen Monsters? the trailer for Rob Zombie's Monsters? Yeah, it looks atrocious. It looks like one of the worst movies ever put to celluloid, and that's really saying something. Especially I I, from Rob Zombie. I saw some pushback on that. We're saying, well, that's the point. It's very tongue-in-cheek, and I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> that trailer looks really bad. Yeah. But Kodinato commentary by Rob Zombie and a making of featurette. I don't know. If it comes back to be some kind of room, you know, hilarious bad film, or maybe yeah. it's so funny and clever that it's winking at you the whole time. I'm not I am not confident about that at all. Mm-hmm. So but the monsters is coming, folks. Sator, which is a horror film I heard a lot of good things about. It's secluded in a desolate forest, matter broken families deserved by the demon Sator, who's attempting to claim them. Includes behind the scenes, commentaries, director's commentaries, and limited edition release has a high quality slipcase and a mini poster that is folded. Logo USA is putting out Pretty Man Silent Fury. A deaf criminal with a traumatic past and his son must fight their way out of their small Indonesian village after witnessing a horrible murder, pitting the gangsters against the mob outfit that employed them. Lionsgate still hit you. Is releasing Bulletproof, <laughs> the latest joint with featuring Vinnie Jones. Uh, new to Blu-ray, Criterion is putting out Sound of Metal, the uh, great little film from a few years ago. They're also putting out a UHD of it as well. Includes a uh, Dolby Vision presentation of the film. It, there's a 4K that's of a Blu-ray as well. The 4K Digital Master was supervised by the director, Darius Martyr. Let's see what else we have here, Matt. A new conversation with the director. A new program about the film's sound and uh, some other featurettes as well. Criterion is also putting out Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project number 4. Um, <laughs> did you see about... Uh, what was that? Somebody had tweeted out something like, uh, you know, if Scorsese cared so much about film, maybe he'd spend some time working on helping uh other film international cinema get a, a voice or something like that and people we were like are you, are you kidding me because he turns out one of these like every year yeah yeah <laughs> so what do we have coming up here in this one it is you think i'd have this all ready to go because i'm a professional but not always 1972's shambazinga the first woman to direct a film in africa sarah Moldalar's chronicle the awakening of angola's independence movement what else we have? Prisoneros de la Terra from 1938. That's actually 1939. Way to read, Chris. Chest of the Wind from 76, which is an Iranian film. Munamoto is another African film from 1975. We have a Hungarian film, Two Girls on the Street from 1939. And then 1948's Kalpana is being released as well, all as part of this set. Matt, also coming up here, we have from Arrow, a fugitive from the past. Shortly after the war, a moneylender from Iwanaya is assassinated along with his entire family. The same day, a terrible shipwreck takes place off of Hakadate, the port that criminals used to cross the strait. Only one survivor of the crossing, he then meets Ye, a prostitute who covers his escape. This is discovered by chance ten years later, but in the meantime, the man who has become respected in his industry is embarrassed by the reappearance of Ye, the last trace of his past. I'm having trouble talking tonight. Mm, that's a problem on a podcast. Sibilance. <laughs> chuck, chuck. What is the one from Anchorman that he says? Does his, oh, one of his... the the human torch was denied a bank loan. <laughs> that's what I need to start doing. High definition presentation. The restored 183 minute long cut of the film. 
an introduction by writer curator Jasper Sharp, scene-specific commentaries from leading Japanese film scholars, and more. Kino Lorber is putting out Jason's lyric, the story of a young man who must confront his own fears about love as well as his relationships with his family and friends. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome is putting out a standard release of Cloak and Dagger. Now, they have a new sale, Matt, that's, I think, hitting Friday. Or at least some reveal. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a reveal of their Black Friday stuff. That might be well it is. Either way, the Cloak and Dagger, a limited edition release, if you're going to buy this movie, it's going to cost you about 50 bucks. But I think it's worth it because the slip case, it comes this really nice sturdy case. And you open it up and then it looks like the video game cartridge, the box inside from the movie. It's just a cool little detail. What else we have here? Shout Factory is putting out The Warrior and The Sorceress. Because it's a brand new 2K restoration of that one. They're also putting out the hot box, hot action and lust in the steamy tropical jungle, Matt, as heroines break out of a woman's prison and start a local revolution. Kino Lorber is putting out my man Bruce Willis's Hudson Hawk. Now, I already have Hudson Hawk on Blu-ray. This one has an audio commentary by the director. The story of Hudson Hawk, a featurette with uh, Bruce Willis and executive producer Robert Kraft. Another featurette featuring actress Sandra Bernhard and some deleted scenes. MVD Visual is putting out The Chocolate War. A new enrollee at the exclusive Catholic prep school, St. Trinity, Jerry tries to fit in by joining the football team, but immediately runs headfirst into Brother Leon, a ruthless academician. How do you say that? Academician? But it's uh, A-C-A-D-E-M-I-C-I-A-N. Like, academician? I'm going to go like this. A ruthless academic. (laughs) <laughs> striving for a promotion to headmaster and the vigils on an underground student gang that wields a massive amount of power in the school. All right. See, I'm going to say that maybe academician is not a real world because they then, in the same write-up, Matt, they say a underground student gang instead of an underground student mm-hmm. gang. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now I, I'm not just going crazy. Well, future commentary by the director, some interviews, and more. Severin is also putting out the incredible strange films of Ray Dennis, which includes in this box set Wild Guitar, The Incredible Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies, which is a Mystery Science Theater episode as well, The Thrill Killers, Rat Finka Boo Boo, The Lemon Grove Kids, Body Fever, Cynthia the Devil's Doll, Blood Shack, The Hollywood Strangler Meets the Skid Row Slasher, The Las Vegas Serial Killer, One More Time, and more. Fun City is putting out the Michelle Pfeiffer classic Married to the Mob on Blu-ray, and then we are getting some steelbooks, Matt. Mean Girls is getting a steelbook release. And then there's a reprint run of all these limited edition steelbooks. So I guess we're going to try and dilute their values for the people who bought them the first time. Spider-Man No Way Home, Last Action Hero, Gattaca, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, both Jumanji films, the new ones, Venom 1 and 2, and then Zombieland 1 and 2, all getting re-released the same looking steelbooks that had come before. Matt, I still haven't seen Gattaca. It's in my Netflix queue. Should I watch it finally? Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I think it's an underappreciated little sci-fi gem. I gotta get on that. Uh, Coming out in 4K, the 1953 version of Invaders from Mars. There is a limited edition poster signed by Jimmy Hunt, who's one of the stars of the film, is included, but you need to buy the limited edition. The bad, just I'm telling you, bad 1979 version of the Amityville Horror is being released in 4K. I know what you did last summer. A combo pack of War of the Worlds and When Worlds Collide in 4K. The Incredible Melting Man, which is the one we did for our what our body horror gross-out mm-hmm. marathon from a while back. Not a great film, but the no. uh, body-melting stuff. Yeah, great effects. And then uh, the Evil Dead, Fidi Alvarez's Evil Dead, 
is coming out in 4K. And they've also just announced, I think it's coming out in October, is a two-pack of Evil Dead 1 and 2, the OGs. You can buy them individually now, but you can buy them both as a two-pack next month. Matt, your straight-to-DVD pick of the week. I'm going to go with The Blood of the Chupacabras. <laughs> it's a double-feature Blu-ray, Matt, which includes a shot on video horrors, Blood of the Chupacabras from, from excuse me, 2003, and its sequel, Revenge of the Chupacabras from 2005. Blood features about a, it's a group of local townsfolk who are led by a treasure hunter into a nearby mine in search of gold, but encounter a vampiric chupacabra monster. And then finally, Revenge is about a detective in search of a missing college student, and he's lured by a madman into a lair of the fabled chupacabra monster. <laughs> Matt, what should we be streaming this week? And I'm assuming it doesn't involve chupacabras. It does not involve chupacabras. Um... Coward. <laughs> So um, we're getting ready to talk about a documentary by one Brett Morgan, and he has done several documentaries. And I'm going to recommend um, one of the two other uh, musician-focused documentaries that's available for streaming right now. Cobain, Montage of Heck, is available on HBO Max. It details the troubled life of uh, Kurt Cobain, um, before his untimely death, um, his rise to fame, and kind of insights into his psyche through his writings, his drawings, interviews, and um, sets a bit of a template, I think, that we may talk about coming up for uh, for our next uh, film that we're going to discuss. It's quite good, though. Is it? I have not seen it. Mm-hmm. I heard, too, that um, I haven't seen it either, but his other one of his other films, The Kid Stays in the Picture, about mm-hmm. uh, what uh, Rob Revens, a famous producer, is supposed to be pretty damn good, too. Yeah. And he did a, a Rolling Stones documentary as well, but I forget the name of it. Mm-hmm. Good times. Man, Matt, that sounds terrifying. Speaking of terrifying... I'm Garth Marenghi, author, dreamweaver, visionary, plus actor. You are about to enter the world of my imagination. You are entering my dark place. All right, for those following along at home, Matt has embarked upon my humble request on watching all episodes of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. You know, Matt knows a lot of writers who use subtext, and they're all cowards. (laughs) So on this episode of our Garth Marenghi run-through, Matt, you're on episode five. You're almost done, right? No, we're on episode four. Oh, four. We're on the the monkey episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, good. That's, uh, yeah. Okay. What are your thoughts then on the uh, fourth episode? What is it called again? I know it's not the monkey episode, but it's certainly... <laughs> it's, it's not the monkey episode. The Apes of Wrath. The Apes of Wrath. That's right. Yeah. So basically, Garth Marenghi, he he wrote a book um, about rats, uh, people turning into rats and things taking over. And he decided, what would that be like if he just changed the animal for Dark Place? And he gives you a little hint. Think Planet of the Apes. And that's basically what this is. Essentially, there is a poison water supply. Uh, all of the water in the hospital, for some reason, is green, but nobody seems to notice. Um, everybody starts drinking the water, except, of course, Dags, and uh, because he he prefers coffee to the water, even though it's sure. not for it's not for lack of trying. And essentially, there's some flashbacks or dream sequences. You know, he looks 
one way, then the other, then forward, then back, sees himself as a monkey. Um, and then he wakes up, you know, a year later and it's basically turned into a monkey hellscape. Um, he pulls out his trusty 357 Magnum that he carries around everywhere for some reason and decides to go take care of it. Um, this was an interesting episode because I think it might be the weakest one so far, but it had some of the best lines of the ones that we've we've seen. I think when they're talking about the kind of absence of, of Liz, I think an absolute brilliant line where they say, Liz was like a candle in the wind. Unreliable. <laughs> I like um, when Sanchez walks out of the operating room because the parent patient died. He's yeah. like, not my fault. Monkey bastard hands. <laughs> Here are those prescription medications you couldn't afford. Don't thank me. And then it goes into, you know, the producer talking about how he had to beat up one of the kids. He had to punch that same kid because he was giving him too much lip. But it wasn't a, it was really more of a back of the hand. So he sh- shouldn't get too upset about it. I like too when Dean Lerner goes on as, you're a fool, Jag. He <laughs> keeps calling him again. You're a fool, a fool, a fool, a flipping fool. Ah, such good stuff. So what are you going to give uh, the uh, apes? Um, I think I'm going to give it a B. I think it's a... I think it's not quite as good as the other ones, but it's still a pretty fun episode. Good times. All right, cool. I'm looking gotta, forward to the fifth one. The Scotch about, Mist. Uh, the, the Scotch Mist, from what I've what I've heard about it. So I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Oh, that'll be next week, folks. Buckle up. Here we go, Matt. A film I've been looking forward to all year, if not longer, from when I first heard they were even going to make it. David Bowie being my favorite musician, I'm very excited, but then very nervous all at the same time. And um, let's uh, let's get into it. Questions have arisen such as who is he, what is he, where did he come from, is he a creature of a foreign power, is he a creep, is he dangerous, is he smart, dumb, nice to his parents, real, a put on, crazy, sane, man, woman, robot, what is this? Are you there, David? Are you there, Mr. David Bowie? All people, no matter who they are, all wish they'd appreciated life more. It's what you do in life that's important, not how much time you have, or what you wish you'd done. So, Matt, we have Brett Morgan's Moon Age Daydream, a documentary about David Bowie, but I don't... It's not a documentary, at least for me, Matt, in the traditional sense, mm-hmm. right? I, I consider it more a celebration of Bowie's music and and of him as an artist. Mm-hmm. It's not like a typical chronological story where we see him as a kid, we follow through high school, follow you know, and everything, all that stuff. It doesn't it doesn't play like that. But I guess my question for you, Matt, is Moonage Daydream great documentary or greatest documentary? I think I would really hesitate to call it the greatest documentary. Um, I will say this. Errol Morris who? Yeah, exactly. Forget that guy. So, yeah, I really struggle with calling this a documentary. This is more Mm -hmm. of a visual spectacle, kind of a celebration of David Bowie's kind of artistry. Um, It's gorgeous to look at. The sound is incredible, you know, listen to it loud until you about go deaf in the, you know, the theater, because I guess that's 
the way this thing is supposed to be presented, I, I as much as I have grown to dislike the theater experience, I think like this is definitely a movie that you really do need to see as loud and as large as you possibly can. And I will say, I, I did enjoy this quite a bit. It is it is a love letter to David Bowie. But this is where my butt comes in. <laughs> so, so I don't love David Bowie the way a lot of people, the way a lot of the people on, on that we see, you know, in this film is, as my esteemed co-host is, as a lot of people are. I respect the man as an artist, but I don't love his work. I never really connected with it on this kind of spiritual level that it seems to affect a lot of people. Right. And where I struggle with this is I think your enjoyment of it, I think you're going to enjoy this no matter who you are. And I think you'll go, Oh, you know, it's an interesting, that was an interesting movie. I, it was a, that was a really something to see. And I, I, I enjoyed the time, but I think how much you're going to take out of this really depends on how much you deify the man, because the way Morgan presents this thing, he's like this larger than life, artistic genius messianic figure and like he's still just a guy right i mean he's still he's not like this the fucking god emperor of dune coming out to like you know bestow his wisdom on the masses and they weren't ready for it or something like that the way this thing is presented but that's my point (laughs) yeah like he doesn't talk about any of the weirdness or the ugliness in in bowie's life he doesn't really touch on the drugs he doesn't touch on like when he had some ill choices and you know flirting with like fascist and nazi imagery and stuff like that doesn't talk about his supposedly taking of um, some 14 year olds virginities and stuff like all of that stuff is just it's all just the kind of look at how great like he is like this is what he produced and it's like transcendent and i think for a lot of people it is but if you're looking for a documentary that tells you about the man you're not really going to get that no that's not what this is at all that's funny too, because I have in one of my in my notes is is it a transcendent experience? No, <laughs> it's not. But it is very, very good. Mm-hmm. I wonder too, Matt. Is, is it too esoteric for the non fans? Even if you're like not, you know, a Bowie mm-hmm. a holic like myself, right? You know, whatever the case, whatever the term would be. Is there enough there to keep you engaged and entertaining if you're not a big Bowie fan? If you hear what you hear on like on the rock stations, you're like, oh, Rebel mm-hmm. Rebel, I know that song. Yeah. You think yeah. that that's good enough? I don't know. I really don't. I think what'll be really interesting is you know, I know who Bowie is and I understand his influence, even if I don't love him to the extent that a lot of people do. But like what about the kids, right, who may not really have much of an exposure to them, is if somebody had zero exposure, even, like, listening to Rebel Rebel or Suffragette City or something, like, what's their connection with this? What are they going to see? I think they're going to be weirded out. I think it'll be hard to, like, kind of relate to this thing. Mm, I guess that's possible. I think you do have to be a little steeped in his lore and his fandom to, I think, to really get the full impact of what the film is about. I'm not sure. I think it's, like you said, it's not a documentary. It's more of a celebration of an artist's work and in his life. And I think, thankfully, it doesn't play the hits. I mean, mm-hmm. it does a couple of the big, some of the really big ones, but it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not entirely focused on all, all the big hits that he had. I kept wondering, is like, is it too esoteric for non fans? Is it too, like, Mrs. First Run? I I I had to I kind of have to screen these things ahead of time before I'm going to drag her in to say anything, and I'm like she's not Ada, she's not the biggest Bowie fan at all. She thinks he's weird, and right. I think she would find this film even weirder. Yeah, but I think 
for people like myself, the connection that we have with Bowie is because when you grow up, there's a certain kind of person, and I was one of these people, where you feel like an outsider, you feel like nobody gets you, you feel kind Mm -hmm. of alone, right? And then you see him, and it's like you connect with it because he is like he was able to provide this kind of visual physical representation of kind of how we all felt mm-hmm. and he and he felt like he were like he was one of us i don't know i i can't really describe it i know i probably mentioned it a thousand times in the show but how i got into bowie was i was putting together an 80s mix and i bought changes the Ryko disc from the 90s because i wanted to get mm-hmm. let's dance modern love and china girl three songs i loved at the time and then I started listening to the whole thing and I fell in love with it. And then from there, I found like one song. All right. Well, I love um, Life on Mars. Let's pick up Hunky Dory. And I bought that mm-hmm. album. And I loved mm-hmm. the entire album. And I did that through his entire oeuvre. And I agree with you. It doesn't touch on some of the dark stuff in his past. It touches briefly on his cocaine period, mm-hmm. you know, because he has an interview in the car when he's clearly high and there's a little right. paranoia stuff. They yeah. talk about Berlin. He he went to Berlin to kind of change his outlook to get a different view on things. He also went there to kind of break his cocaine habit. That was all right. part of it too. Him and Nicky Pop. Uh, that it skips twenty years, so we don't talk talk about anything about Tin Machine, and we mm. don't cover anything from hours to the next day. There's mm. a lot of work in that that he doesn't even get touched on. There it bookends with Black Star, which is fine. And at one point, too, they do a whole thing where he talks about how they try and launder the 80s period as saying he doesn't sell out, that mm-hmm. he's more one of them make move music for lovers, for pop, mm-hmm. you know, for people. He sold out in yeah. 86, 85. Right. That, that Tonight album is bad. All right. There's like one or two good songs on it, but he churned that out because his record label was pushing him for new music because he was so popular at the time. Right. So... I don't know. I think for the most part, for what it tries to do, it's very successful. I would like to have seen more stuff. If there's some deleted scenes or some enhanced edition that comes out in 4K at some point, I'll be very excited to see how Morgan handles the Tin Machine period. What about the next day? What about Heathen? All this stuff I would love to see a little bit more on. But as a Bowie fan, I found it very exciting. To you almost feel at times like you're in his mind, Bowie's mind. You're experiencing like a state of Bowie kind of a thing, right? And it's, mm-hmm. I think it's very well done. And I think it honors the artist very well. It's, I feel like there's a quote in the movie that Bowie says where he kind of tells you to go to the deep end of the pool or to the water, the ocean, right? And go to the part where you, you can't, you just, your feet can't touch the ground anymore. And that's where creativity can be found. And I feel like that's what this movie does to you when you're watching it. So, I don't know. It's good. I had a lot of fun with it. I, th- I think I've used that phrase. That seems to be my go-to phrase the last few weeks is I had a lot of fun with it. So, I got to stop saying that. It's a Matt, it honors the artist. It's a visual and auditory feast for the Bowie fan. And I think it's a fitting send-off uh, theatrically for the artist. I really, I loved it. I, I of course... I'm giving Moon Age Daydream an A. Did it feel overly long uh, to you? Because some people say it's over two hours. I There was one is. point where I felt like, but then it kind of jumped right in again, so I was okay. Yeah, I mean, it's such a spectacle, and it just kind of washes over you that I don't, 
I didn't really notice. I mean, I'm very sensitive depending on what it is as far as length goes. I didn't feel like it was over long. I think if it would have been any longer, that would have been really pushing it. And I really probably would have been annoyed by it. But I think it's it's fine. And honestly, of this other guy's movies, that seems to be his running time. A little a little over two hours for some of these kind of uh, biographies that he does. I love to the remixes, uh, the Moon Age Daydream mixes of some of the songs, like the uh, Modern Love one where they strip it down. It's basically just a piano for about mm-hmm. a minute and a half part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did the same thing with DJ. So there is a, a an album coming out, a two-disc set and a three-LP version. And I cannot wait to get my hands on because I loved what they did with some of the songs in this. So one of my favorite Bowie albums is called Boot of Suburbia which is based off of a, he scored a television show, but it's not a TV soundtrack. It's, mm-hmm. he took kind of the elements of the music and then developed full songs out of them. Uh, and it's wonderful. It's one of my favorite things he's done. And they use two of the big um, ambient pieces in that in the film. One is uh, Ian Fish, UK Air, and The Mysteries. And they're very dark. And I think there's some of the best work he's ever done is those two pieces. So I was really, there are newer versions of them remixed in this and i loved it so i can't wait to get my hands on them it's available to stream right now so if any of you have like a apple music or um spotify Spotify, whatever yeah you can listen to the album now too uh i will point out too if you want to see an imax by the time you listen to this it'll be too late it's going to be gone in imax as of thursday night uh but it also was co-produced by uh hbo documentary pictures so um looks like it'll be on hbo at some point i'd imagine Mm -hmm. as well Okay. So, fair enough. Matt, what did you give it? Did you give us a grade yet? I did not give you a grade. You went into a tangent about how great some of the music was, so I just let you Yeah, what a surprise. Um, Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. I think I'm going to give it a B+. I, I, it's, I like the craft. I like what he was trying to do with it. It's just that I'm not a Bowie super fan, so like a lot of the okay. stuff Chris is talking about kind of went over my head. Like, you know, I recognize the few pieces that I knew, but I mean, a lot of it, it didn't have an impact to me because I just... I'm not that steeped in his in his musical work. Um, I don't have. I could not have the conversation, hold a conversation with Chris about this stuff, and it's just I just don't have that knowledge. But I will say this: the man is not infallible. If you have the opportunity, do not listen to his uh, his travesty that is his pr- production version of Raw Power. Always listen to the Iggy version, not the David Bowie version. Oh, yeah, that's not good at all. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of, yeah, that Raw Power album that he produced. It's it's so, what, flat and muted. It and, is. Yeah, then uh, you listen to the Iggy version, and, like, it's blowing out your speakers. Like, you know, it's yeah. awesome. I love, too, when Iggy, in the liner notes of that, he put in, like, basically, he just amped, he just amped everything. He, like, spinal tapped it. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically is what he did. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. That's a good, that's a fair point. All right, if you've had a chance to see Moonage Daydream, Shoot us an email at feedback at the first run.com. It is still playing in theaters this weekend. It just won't be an IMAX anymore, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So I'm trying to, th- I have a softball game Thursday night. I am desperately thinking of going to see it in IMAX one last time before it, it goes. Uh, we'll have to see. In the meantime, to stick with the musical theme, Matt and I are going to now share with you our five favorite albums. Now, it's tough. I'm not sure. It's probably the same with you, Matt, right? Where it, it's, it, it it evolves. It's an ever-moving yeah. thing, what your five favorite albums are. though. I think mm-hmm. My number one has been my number one for a very, very long time. Yeah. But um, the rest of them, we'll have to see. But let's start everything off, though, 
I don't know if any scores are going to make either our lists, but this may be one of my favorite covers of John Carpenter's Halloween. Why are you looking at me like that? What, what the hell is that? That sounds like that sounds like me when I was like five years old trying to play it in my on my aunt's piano. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna say I'm assuming you are familiar with one John Benjamin Archer. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. H. John Benjamin, perhaps yeah. Bob's Burgers, mm-hmm. all that yeah. fun stuff. So a while back, he put out an album called "Well, I Should Have," subtitled "Learn How to Play Piano." Which is an experimental jazz album where he has actual jazz musicians playing and then he plays the piano along with it, not knowing how to play. And it is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And it made me laugh so hard I cried the first time I heard it. And then he did a second album, which is him basically... Can you hear that? Yeah. (laughs) Him covering certain movie themes. And this is one of them. Miami Vice is another one. And uh, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Wow. Not quite in my top five, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I'll have to check that out. There you go. I'll go first, Matt. I'll give you the ultimate number one. Plus, you'll be able to. I want you to be able to guess my number one. I guess. Okay. And maybe you should go first then, if we want to do that. Yeah, I right? sent you. I sent you a list. So before the show started, I wanted to see how well I knew my friend Chris here. I sent a list of five albums. I'm pretty confident at least two of them. Now, don't look at the list yet. But nope. when we're done, open it up when you redo your number one and see how close I was. I, I will do that. I will say, too, I have like 30 albums on here that I had to uh, eventually then just limit it down to. And I'm sure, Matt, you were the same. But uh, yeah, right, I mean, sorry, I, could, I mean, the honorable mentions could probably take 20 minutes. Um, but anyway, so I will say that a lot of these are maybe more how influential they were on me. Um, so mm-hmm. I'll keep that in mind. Um, but so my number five then is from, again, one of the more most influential bands of my musical tastes. Um, it was a band that I recognized and seen, um, but I never really connected with until I was a little older by a little older, meaning when I was in my late teens and they had kind of long since disappeared at that point. This is not the standard Canon choice, but I'm going to say my number five is Pixies Bossa Nova. Mm. I have really mm. started to warm on Bossa Nova mm. a lot. And I, and I, and I don't know if it's because I've listened to Doolittle so many times, um, yeah. but I really have much more fun listening to Bossa Nova now. I, I don't know why, but it's, I know Doolittle is kind of like the standard pick, but I really think you should, people should give Bossa Nova more of a chance. I feel like if you're going to introduce somebody to the Pixies, you would hand them Doolittle. Mm-hmm. But after that, you would go to... You probably maybe go Surfer Rosa because it's a little rougher, mm-hmm. right? But I think I agree with you. The album I enjoy the most is Bossa Nova. It's not mm-hmm. in my top five at the moment. It has been in the past. Yeah. I also really like Trompleman, but that's kind of more of a Frank Black solo album than right. anything else. But it's still excellent. It is. So, but I agree with you. If I have to pick one Pixies album right now to listen to, I would go. I, you know, because it just it has that surf feel to it, and I just mm-hmm. love that stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's good. My number five then, Matt, is kind of a soundtrack, and it is the soundtrack to Drive. 
Mm. It is uh, featuring music by Cliff Martinez and then a whole bunch of music by Johnny Jewel as part of his chromatics and other stuff groups he's involved in. But that whole album is like a, a vibe, as the kids say. And whenever I'm trying to get into some kind of artistic mode, I'll pop that album in. That's the album that kind of really reignited my love for synth music as well. And it really it started like a snowball thing for me of finding a whole bunch of new kind of synth stuff. I ended up finding like Future Islands, which is a band I love through mm-hmm. because of that. Um, just through like I think Apple al- algorithms and shit. But and then I found I got into Johnny Jewel, the Chromatics, all the stuff. I went on a a shopping spree on his what is Italians do it better website because he has a bunch of his albums like five bucks for digitally so I bought like ten of them also great like night driving music lots of just cool cool synth stuff so and it all started with Drive soundtrack of course a film that I am mildly obsessed with mildly so, obsessed with yeah yeah man so we're breaking all kinds of rules exactly. breaking all kinds of rules today we did it we talked about a documentary and now you're talking about Drive which is forbidden. It's verboten. <laughs> um, all right. So my number four. Um, so I have a confession to make. Even though this, this guy is a bit of a bastard, maybe more than a bit of a bastard, I think he's really... I, I always thought he was super cool. And I love that basically the... All of the albums that they put out have been good to great. But this one, I think, is their, their magnum opus. And I'm talking about Queens of the Stone Age's Songs for the Deaf. Just the kind of... The guitar tone that Josh Homme puts out there, the riffs, the 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 way that everything is structured. They've got Dave Grohl in there playing drums on the album as kind of like a journeyman. And you can really just feel the propulsiveness that he brings to the whole thing. It's the last time Nick, Nick Oliveri is playing bass in the band before he was fired. It's really, I think, their best work. And I think it's it's just a quintessential like early 2000s rock album that is, if you're into kind of that kind of sleazy edged you know slightly drugged out slightly sexually inappropriate rock music that's just kind of dirty but it's it's just a hell of a lot of fun yeah i think you can't really do any better than songs for the deaf i that's the only album of theirs i have mm-hmm. um i really like that what that no one knows that was a big hit for them too yeah right? it was yeah so i haven't really listened to them that much but i do really like his collaboration with Iggy Pop, that post-pop depression album that came mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. That one's pretty good too if you're an Iggy Pop fan. Yeah. Iggy seems to kind of go from, I don't know what, producer influence to producer influence. Yeah. And uh that one was though, that album is is actually really strong. So they did a he did a a super group with Dave Grohl and uh John Paul Jones um called Them Crooked Vultures. That's actually a really good album as well. Oh I've heard of that. Okay. Yeah. My number four, I think it's just because this is where I am at the moment. I've been listening to this musician a lot for the last month and a half, though I've always loved it. And that's Matthew Sweet's 100% Fun, mm. his uh, third big uh, full album. I think one of the best, uh, what is it, kind of pop rock, or what do they call that? No, it's not pop rock. What do they call it? His power pop. Yeah, One of the best pop. power pop albums of the 90s. And uh, I think Matthew Sweet still, his stuff for the last... 10 years or so has been good. Mm-hmm. All right. But, but he hasn't sniffed anything as good, unfortunately, since uh, probably a hundred percent fun though. The album after that backward or upside, what's it called now? I've been listening to all this stuff for like a month now, but it's that the one after hundred percent fun. No, that's blue sky on Mars. It's the one after blue sky on Mars. That is 
actually pretty is actually pretty strong too. But then things kind of took a turn after this, after that, I should say. But 100% fun, Matt, is rock solid from start to finish. Tracks 1 through 12 and some of the best uh, part of that. See, I don't know what's wrong with me tonight. I've already blanked on the phrase. Power pop, mm-hmm. I think, ever made. That album mm-hmm. is just rock solid from start to finish. Girlfriend's fun, but it's still got that folksy feel to it. Mm-hmm. And then um, Dinosaur, is it Dinosaur Act? No, it's not. It's um, Altered, no, Altered Beast is the one after that. It's, uh, all right, know what? This is what we're going to do, folks. I'm going to stop sounding like an idiot. And I'm just going to pull up my iTunes library. Altered Beast, yeah, that is the name of the album. Is is It's got a country twang feel to it that I'm not the biggest fan of, though I think it's still an okay album. Um, in Reverse, that was the last, I think, great album that he did. But 100% fun, man. Oh, start to finish. Great tunes. So that's my uh, number four. Well, my number three, I think, is what I would choose as the best power pop album of the 90s. That is, again, I think this is where we're starting to get into cliche territory with me. But I think a a solid album beginning to end, and it still holds up, is is the same day as the first day I bought it. And that's Weezer's Blue Album. The Spider, whatever you think of Weezer now and what the kind of, you know, little three-minute rock tunes that are very disposable and just frankly in my opinion most of them are not that good those first two albums and especially the blue album are fantastic i don't know if it's the influence of matt sharp who was you know he was the bassist for a couple of those albums also the kind of lead force of the rentals Um, but there was something that was special about those first two and i think it was really for me not only did you have the power chords and and riffs that i love and the kind of pop sensibilities but it also had that twinge of emo which would become very important in my later life um before emo became a four-letter word but it it had this kind of like foundations of of bringing emo to the masses even though they quickly abandoned it after the soul bearing that was pinkerton yeah i man i have that i have never really like got into it or listened to it I know I always like say it ain't so, but that was also because I think that was the uh, I like we played that on rock band mm, a lot back did, in the day, we did, right? We did, yeah. So mm, yeah, I got to got to. I've never really got into them, though. I like the the Green album. I mm-hmm. that like Hashpipe was a really fun, and Island of the Sun is mm-hmm. a very catchy tune. But I never really gave Weezer a lot of attention. So I don't know. It just annoyed me. I think is what it was. <laughs> Well, we were, you know, we're not that different in age right now, but back when we were kids, the gap was pretty large. That was a big gap because, yeah. I mean, I was probably, how old was I, like 13 years old when this came out? Chris was graduating from high school and I was just going in. So, I mean, it was right. a different set of sensibilities kind of thing. True. Good point. All right. My number three, then. Everybody says their favorite album is like you typically Dark Side of the Moon from mm-hmm. Pink Floyd. Other mm-hmm. people like um, Wish You Were Here. Mm-hmm. from pink floyd is their favorite album but for me hands down my number three my favorite pink floyd album is animals mm-hmm. i adore that album the new 2018 mix of animals is available now for streaming i think you can buy it this past friday though i'm still waiting on the big set which has got the record blu-ray dvd <sighs> do with that and then the <laughs> cd but i was very excited matt because it was like 90 bucks for that set and i pre-ordered it because I said, if they're going to put something on animals, I'm going to get it. And it dropped like $50 last week. Oh, boy. How and could, how could you say excited. no? <laughs> I was super. I'm, I'm making money now, right? Yeah, yeah. 
So, but yeah, no, and the, that new 2018 mix, and the reason why, I think we talked about it the other week when I mentioned that it was coming out, is because I couldn't agree on the liner notes, but the mix itself, it's so crystal clear when the prior version sounded so kind of, it sounded a little muddled, not this one. This thing is clear as a bell. It sounds incredible. I've listened to it a couple times now on my super special Sony, you know, WXHM, whatever the hell they're called, $300 headphones. Mm-hmm. Incredible. So, uh, Animals, my favorite Pink Floyd album, my number three favorite album at this time. All right. What do you think of the Division Bell? I like it. It was very, in. I, I think it's better than Momentary Lapse of Reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was getting, that's when I was getting into Pink Floyd when that came okay. out. Mm-hmm. And a couple of my favorite Pink Floyd songs are on that album. I mm-hmm. love Rick Wright's Wearing the Inside Out. A Great Day for Freedom is another great song from that. I don't like really any of the big so- the hits on that album. But Wearing the Inside Out, uh, A Great Day for Freedom, and there is one more that I love. And it uh, Oh, Coming Back to Life, that was it. I think are both fantastic. What about you? You a Division Bell fan? No, I I think the lack of waters really kind of oh yeah I, 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 it's, I, it's it a just, whole it different band it's a whole different band and I, I just never really got on board with it but I remember back when it came out it was like a big deal like you it was a lot of people I knew were like super into it and I was like I don't I didn't really get all the fuss over it you know yeah it's it's a collection of kind of gen, mostly generic rock songs mm-hmm. for most of it I think yeah. there's some standouts the ones I mentioned but I think you're right. They're never the same after uh, the split, for sure. Yeah. All right. So this is where I display one. Of, if if my hipster bona fides haven't been brought out enough, this is the. If you talk to anybody who was of my certain age, if you look at any number of lists on the internet about what's possibly the greatest indie rock album out there is, this is always seems to make at least the top five, if not number one, and it's Neutral Milk Hotels in the Aeroplane Over the Sea. Now. If you haven't heard this album, I would just recommend to go out and listen to it. It's made by the brainchild of basically the J.D. Salinger of indie rock, Jeff Mangum, who made three albums with this band, had this kind of magnus opus that just like people has just grown in cult-like status since 2002 when it was released. And he's basically disappeared off the face of the earth. Like you, he doesn't really make any music anymore. Um, and he's got this kind of one perfect little indie rock album i mean it's weird um the lyrics at times are poetic and kind of disturbing sometimes he's got this weird instrumentation where you know they've got horns and and it sounds like a one-man band somewhere in the back um but you know juxtaposed with these acoustic guitars that'll switch to electric guitars that are just completely blown out man it is a good album from beginning to end it is like kind of an experience it's one of those weird albums that you can't separate each piece of it. It's really kind of, you have to listen to it as a whole to kind of really kind of bring it together. That's just, so I had heard great things about it mm-hmm. too. So I bought it one day okay. and I listened to it and I was like, ah, oh, that's okay. Really? Yeah. I, I have to revisit it. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll play it in the next couple of days. Cause I have not listened to it since. Mm. Cause you're just not that blown away by it, but well, you know, when you're wrong, you're wrong, Chris. It <laughs> <So> I... <laughs> does happen. I had that same concern too. So, like uh, Edward Drust of Grizzly Bear supposedly has walked away from the band. I love that band, mm-hmm. but he felt like it's just he hated touring, and I guess he didn't like that life. Yeah. So he went back to school, I guess, to be a therapist or okay. something like that. 
So it's very disappointing because I think they're really good. In fact, yeah, Vectomist is uh, in my is one of my honorable mentions. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that's too bad about that. I'll, I'll give it another spin, Matt. You never know; stuff grows on you, right? Yeah, and see, this is one of the weird things. So me and Chris are both really into music, and I think it's one of our common. But but there's very little overlap in the Venn diagram of what we like. <laughs> Even the That's bands true. that we like, like we both really like Grizzly Bear, but we like completely different songs on the album. Like you'll be like, <laughs> "Oh, what about this?" I'm like, "That's okay, but I like this one." And you're like, "Not really my thing." So it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> Matt, too. What I want, I keep meaning to ask you to do this too at some point. Is to go old school maybe and like make me like a mix CD or send me a playlist or something of, because I like indie rock, especially mm-hmm. kind of crunchy guitar stuff. Sure. And Matt knows a lot of a lot more in that of that than I do. So, um, like I have that what is it M something eighty six C eighty six like compilation that mm-hmm. expanded to three discs. That's yeah. all these little small indie rock bands from like what the LA scene or something like yeah, that in yeah, the eighties. Yeah. yeah. I actually heard about it from Scott Ackerman on his comedy bang bang show. He talked about it once and I was able to track down a copy of it and it is awesome. Yeah. So I like, yeah. All right. That's good. We'll have to do that for me sometime, Matt. All right, Give I'm you something else start. to do. Yeah. We'll have some free time. All right. Good. My number two then is a CD that, again, a lot of these opened me up to new things. And this one... So I'm a big Pixies fan. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't before this album. I hadn't, weren't, wasn't really that familiar with them. Even though a buddy of mine in college had asked me to get into them. Because he could see... Because he was a big punk guy. And he could see kind of... I think he knew that I would like this. Because the Pixies, for all of their kind of harshness sometimes, they're also the very strong pop sensibilities to their mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. So I'm working at Borders, Matt, right? And this album comes out, and we we have to start playing it. So I start putting it on, and I'm listening to it. I'm like, oh, this is cool. What is this? Oh, this is really awesome. What song is this? And it's Frank Black and the Catholics' Dog in the Sand. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind how much I love that album. Then I started picking up all of his albums. And I will confess to you, the first time I heard it, I thought it was Jack Black. <laughs> in my head not frank black and i'm right, thinking okay. wow this guy the actor really put this album out i mean i knew he had he was he had some musical talent but this is crazy but then i you know eventually i figured out who it was and then from there i i moved i think i picked up the death to the pixies greatest hits album which is which also has a a concert album on it too which is a fantastic if you want a greatest hits of the pixies try and track that one down that's a really yeah. good primer for the pixies but Dog in the Sand started my love for Frank Black, and I became obsessed with him for a good 10, 20... Well, I still am now. Though I will confess that the new Pixie stuff... It's not great. No. No. <laughs> but the, the Frank Black and the Catholics, all of his solo stuff, for the most part, I adore. So, But the album that started it all is Dog in the Sand, and they just released earlier this year all the Frank, all the Catholics albums on vinyl in a box set. Mm-hmm. And I picked it up, and I've been listening to it, and it's just so awesome. So... Yeah, so as, as much as I love Pixies and as much as I love Frank Black's solo albums, I never really have listened to his Catholics output. I, it's 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 something I need to. I've been meaning to listen to, but I just haven't. I just haven't checked it out yet. So yeah, it's, it's kind of to... his alt country Americana run. Okay. That uh, yeah, and then he shifted from that into his kind of um, his blonde on blonde phase. Mm-hmm with a couple Nashville albums that he recorded with like legendary Nashville, you know, um, studio musicians. 
And then from there, it was the Pixies reunion. All right, well, that's what we'll do, Matt. I will put together a uh, a little mix for you of the Catholics, who I think are some okay. of are their best songs. Okay. And then uh, we'll we'll trade those out, and maybe we'll find a way to post those on the website. We can uh, people fun. can take a listen to them. All right, yeah. so go ahead, close it out. What's your one? All right, so this is so I I struggled with this because honestly, the album's great. Every single one of them is a banger. It's 1991. I'm 12 years old. My first, my first, <laughs> my first tape that I ever bought was Metallica's Ride the Lightning. And I'm quickly becoming really focused on metal. I have Iron Maiden. I have Slayer albums. And you. then this, then this thing, this kid from Seattle he moves to Henry to Simsbury. He moves. He starts talking about this band that he really likes called mm. Nirvana. And when they and they've got an album coming out and it's going to be great. This thing hits and it is like I cannot overstate the impact that Nevermind had on my musical growth. Um, it opened up the world of kind of indie rock. It opened up the world of punk rock to me. Um, it's really as Chris even said about our last selection, you know, insofar as whatever Kurt Cobain is, as far as, you know, the kind of hard guitars and the, and the, the attitude and everything like that, he was also a dedicated pops crafter of songs. Right. And that, and that I think is the secret weapon of that album. Every single, everything, every single one of those is a great track. There's not a bad one on there. They're all classic. And just because of just kind of, the musical doors that opened for me to kind of pass beyond my focus on, on metal at that point was uh, just a tran- transcendent. So I had to, I had to put it out there and I was just listening to it yesterday. I was like, man, this shit is good. <laughs> so I, I did not like Nirvana when I was younger too, because it was so huge. You couldn't get away from it. No. And it, it just everywhere. annoyed the hell out of me. So I, I just refused. <laughs> and then I picked up, a couple of the albums like used CDs a while back and I listened to Nevermind. I finally said, Chris, everybody loves this shit. Listen to it. All right. right. Maybe you're missing something. And I liked it. It was mm-hmm. actually, it's very, like you say, the songwriting is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you like, and then to reuse that same phrase, he does have some really strong pop sensibilities, which allows the, the rawness of everything mm-hmm. you, you you're able it balances all out it all out really well to make it a really sonically and very enjoyable experience so yeah i need to dive more into that i have i have i think i got was it only three studio albums and i think that's what i got yeah there's three studio albums there's the live album in utero and you there's yeah bleach never mind and in utero there is a like a B-sides and rarities called Incesticide. And then of course there's Unplugged, which is the other Stone Cold uh, classic album that they've came out with. I still, I remember at that point how angry I would people, I'd get when people would say, oh man, I love, you ever Nirvana's, uh, you know, Man Who Sold the World? And I'm like, what? <laughs> how dare you? What'd you say? <laughs> but I so, mean, he even says it's a David Bowie song in the middle of, right after doing it. So Nobody listens that far i don't know <laughs> back then people still had to listen to the radio matt and try and record stuff using their tape decks or whatever you know right. before the dj started talking that's right yeah you hope that you would get a good mix that's right <laughs> <laughs> oh kids you have no idea all right matt what's my number one i don't know now because i honestly did not get a single one on your list but i Ooh. 
I my thought it was is that it's low by David Bowie. It is indeed. Yeah, it is indeed. Okay. It is so my favorite one, album. Right? Yeah, it's I it's one of the few albums on this. There's a few albums I have on my honorable mentions too, but that basically changed how I hear music. Mm. And David Bowie's Low is that. I started off, as I said, with the pop stuff, the 80s, and then uh, worked backwards from there. Scary Monster is still incredibly strong start to finish. Station to Station, a beautiful album. Heroes, a a little raw um, from that Berlin period, but still a great album. Uh, Ziggy Stardust really is the one everybody goes to, right? And it is wonderful and beautiful, but... In the end, Low is my favorite album. It contains my favorite song of all time, which is always crashing in the same car. The album itself, though, it's very dark. It's very mysterious, but still has some great pop sensibilities, particularly the first half. So if you're not familiar with Low, the first half is regular songs with vocals, but they're also like snippets. Like he was very experimental. He was working with Brian Eno at the time. And he would say, all right, well, we're going to, this album, this song, this song is going to be one minute and like 26 seconds long. And we're going to move on to the next one. We're not going to draw anything out. We're just going to hit the core parts of it and we're going to end it. And then the second half is all of this moody ambient stuff that I used to paint to in college. And mm-hmm. I, to this day, I still love it. And Ryko Disc at the time released, w- released it with two bonus tracks, which I think you can get now as part of the All Saints compilation which is all of bowie's instrumentals but at the time they had never been released before so i used to listen to that album low over and over again it was such an inspiration to me as an artist too so it low is my number one all right let's look at the list matt oh wow all right you're not that far everything here is an honorable mention for me at least okay so number five agent provocateur from foreigner though i would probably Mm -hmm. lean towards four as a stronger album Okay, all right. But That Was Yesterday is one of my all-time favorite songs, which is from that album. Uh, Mm -hmm. Asia, I cannot tell you how hard it was for me to not have Asia (laughs) in my top five. In fact, I listened to it again yesterday. It is Asia's first album, Asia, is a prog rock kind of 80s masterpiece. There is not a single weak song on that album. And if you asked me in a week, it may be in my top five. It is that good. Uh, Heelist New Sports, another strong contender. The first album or first tape I ever bought was Sports. Yeah. And then, yep, yeah, Doolittle is my number two. Again, I'd probably lean towards Bossa Nova now. And then, of course, you did Nail okay. Low. So good job on that. But you're not, those, those picks aren't outrageous. They're certainly <laughs> not outrageous. Yeah. So See, I know what's going on. There you go. So what are your honorable mentions, man? You want to give us a few at least? Or, uh... Uh, yeah, I'll give you a couple because it's a really long list. Uh, Fugazi's 13 Songs, Husker Du's Zen Arcade, Raw Power by the Stooges, mm-hmm. um, Refuse, the, the Shape of Punk to Come, um, At the Drive-In's uh, Relationship of Command. And I will stop it with Elliot Smith's XO, which I, I don't, is not his most popular, but I think it's his strongest one. I have not listened to anything he's ever done. So, good stuff. There you go. Uh, my, some of my honorable mentions: Led Zeppelin's "Houses of the Holy." Uh, usually, I would say three. Me too. But I think "Houses of the Holy" is just a more enjoyable listening experience. Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. But um, I do love. Actually, no. What's your? Uh, um, what is it's a bluesy song on that album? I'm, I'm, I'm so fucking tired. Um, I can't remember the name of it now. 
With the Levy Breaks? Oh. That's my favorite Le- that's my favorite Led Zeppelin song, by the way. Well that's but that's on um four. That's on four. Yeah, that's on four. No, my, well, my favorite Hopper? No, God no. No. My favorite Led <laughs> Zeppelin song is um is it seven years gone. Is it seven years or six years gone? Seven years gone. Seven years gone. That's my favorite Led Zeppelin song. I love that song. But the on three, I'm gonna have to look it up now. Since since I've been loving you mm. is my oh, favorite yeah, song yeah. on that album. It's a good song. Tangerine Two is awesome. That's great. Thank you, almost famous. So, yeah, those two were a reason why basically three was my favorite for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else we have here, Matt? I talk about that. You know what? This is a bit of a cheat. Queen's Greatest Hits. That mm-hmm. that that nineteen eighty one compilation. Yeah. Again, I know it's a greatest hits album, but it was that that album was so important to me as a kid. And we'll launch my love for Queen. Uh, I'm going to go Sandinista from The Clash. you have a favorite Clash album? I love Sandinista because it's so sprawling and it's a bit of a mess. But it's such an adventure that I love listening to it. I mean, I guess I have to go with the kind of... Well, I got to do the layup pick because London Calling is basically their kind of last gasp as a true punk band in my opinion um, yeah so like i that's that's the kind of one i gravitate for when they're at the kind of tightness of their craft but they're still got that punk attitude that kind of they got a little more experimental and away from as they moved on yeah i think that's their zeitgeist i think that's the best thing they ever put out but mm-hmm. i just love how sloppy sandinista is uh i love dave brubeck's Time Out. Mm. uh that's the first uh that's the album that got me in the jazz Sinatra's in the wee small hours, you know, mm. depending on my mood, that could be in my top five at some point. Uh, the Flaming Lips, Yoshimi Battles, The Pink Robots is an album I adore. Yeah. Uh, we talked about those. You know what I like a lot? David Byrne's Look Into the Eyeball. If you like a Burn at all, I think that is a very strong effort by him. Uh, Sarah McLaughlin's Surfacing the sh- is, a, is an album I love. Um, what is it? Witness is a f- song that gives me chills whenever I hear it. Uh, the Shins, Wincing the Night Away, Matt, out of The Shins mm. is my favorite. What about you? Do you have a favorite Shins album? Yeah, um, I should know this, but I'm drawing a blank on... I can see the album cover in my mind, but I cannot seem to think of what the hell it's called. So let me look. Let me look what it is. The Shins. Uh, yeah, it's Wincing the Night Away is the one that I like. Ah, that there is you go. the best one, yeah. The Pam Berry Phantom Limb lead in there i actually combine the tracks from the cd because <laughs> i love how it plays in together i know yeah. the typically people will say well oh inverted world right is yeah. is their favorite or shoots too narrow yeah. but uh still i got for me i have uh funhouse for stooges as my Do favorite you? stooges album oh, I man, love raw power so good raw, is, so, uh, i mean with that that opening riff of, of of search and destroy hits and it just it's just you can hear your headphones or your speaker crackling and you think that you've just blown them out. It's perfection. It's so good. That's true. That is good. Yeah. Penetration too is a song I love on that album. Mm. Well, what's good your, too. Do you have a social distortion favorite album? So as much as I love punk rock, I never really liked social distortion. Oh really? Yeah. I, there's something about his voice that I just can't get behind. I don't know what it is. It, even though it's later, sex, love and rock and roll is I think the best thing they've done. That is super strong. Uh, I would throw on their pocket full of kryptonite from the Smith Doctors. <laughs> wow. Wow. You want to talk about a throwback to junior high for me. Well, wow, that's crazy. I do like that one a lot. Traveling yeah. Wilburys Volume 1. Are you a Wilburys fan? Yeah. I mean, in as a, I respect what it is. All right. I don't have a lot of hip hop on my list. I have Tribe Called Quest Low Wind Theory. 
Yeah. And um, Bop, it's not Bop Gun. What is it? What's the uh, Ice Cube album that has Bop Gun on it? Because that was the first Ice Cube album I ever heard, and I really mm. liked it. I'm not sure. But, I'm not a, a hip hop head either. Although I will say, Run the Jewels is by far my favorite uh, hip hop group as they're that's that's producing music right now and they're all fantastic but rtj3 is is very 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 good i'll have to check that out and it's lethal injection was the uh, ice cube album what about jeff buckley's grace is a yeah grace is a classic album yeah i love grace although it's maybe blasphemy to say i don't love his rendition of hallelujah like a lot of people really yeah, because there's something about the melody of, of Hallelujah that makes it so good. It's just so simple, the melody. And he kind of jettisons all that to kind of make something, you know, much more transcendent. But just for me, I like listening to the melody of, of Hallelujah, um, which is just kind of absent here. Interesting. I think that cover is one of the greatest, if not the greatest cover of all time, mm-hmm. Buckley's version of Hallelujah. It is so staggeringly beautiful. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do still love Moby's Play album. For the Pet Shop Boys, I actually have always really liked Bilingual, which is kind of their Spanish-influenced album. I got to throw in some George Michael's Faith. What about uh, uh, U2 Joshua Tree? That album is strong. I know it's a cliche, mm-hmm. but that album is solid from start it is, to finish. It is pretty solid. Uh, the beta band Hot Shots Part 2, or Hot Shots 2, I think is very, very good. And then a, uh, a last-ditch one, Matt, I'm going to tell you, is uh, Black Crow's Shake Your Moneymaker, their mm. debut album, another great 90s kind of blues pop rock album, strong from start to finish. So I guess that's some of my honorable mentions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've got, I've, yeah, I've got so many. Should we, should, should we be start, should we jettison this whole movie thing and do like a month of movie, of music podcasts? Give us feedback. Feedback at firstround.com. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be fun. Uh, all right. Moving on, Matt. What are we uh, talking about next week? Uh, so we're catching up with uh, Olivia Wilde's latest, Don't Worry Darling, which mm, I saw the rotten, early Rotten Tomato scores not looking good for Miss Wilde and uh, Florence Pugh. So we'll have to see. And I think we're either going to catch up with uh, Hellraiser, which is most likely what we're going to do, or Blonde. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm absolutely in the meantime you can check us out on facebook twitter instagram youtube do a search for the first run scroll 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 eventually you'll find us head on over to apple Podcasts and give us a review it'll help other people find the show and i guess matt that'll that'll be it so why don't we go ahead and uh, take an extended break we'll see you all soon we love you very much take care What a classic forward matchup. Hurrah!